Our sermon text this evening is Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, which are very familiar verses. And for the sake of the context, I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. Uh, again, I think the whole of it's familiar, but it, it all really is of a piece. But we're really focusing in on, on those last um, three verses, 8 to 10. But here, God's word from Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray once more. Lord, we should never tire of hearing the good news of the gospel of grace. It should always thrill our hearts to hear of the great work of Christ that has been accomplished by him, applied to us by your spirit. But it's also important that we understand that we are saved for purpose, and that purpose is your glory, and we are called to glorify you through the good works which are the fruit of grace working in our lives. These good works are, are the result of faith worked out in us. And I pray that we would have a fresh apprehension of that, even this evening. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With these questions of the Heidelberg Catechism that we've taken up this evening, questions number 86 and 87, We've come to the third and final section of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is titled, Our Thankfulness. Now, the bulk of this third and final section of the Catechism is taken up with an explanation of the Ten Commandments. And so, the Catechism is addressing the law of God. And there's a propriety uh, to the law being expounded after the first two sections the first having been our sin and misery, the exposure of our corruption and our need for a Savior, and then the second section being titled Our Deliverance, with a heavy emphasis upon the work of Christ by which alone we are saved. There's a propriety in having considered what it is to be fallen and redeemed before we come to the matter of the commands of God, which are to direct our lives because this underscores the fact that we are never saved by our law-keeping. We've considered the justifying 
work of Christ, the saving grace of God first and now we come to how he has called us to live. But the law is very much a part of our understanding our sin and misery. And there is no deliverance for us apart from the works of the law. Works of obedience. But this is the key to understanding the gospel. God still does require perfect covenant faithfulness, perfect covenant obedience of any of us who would be saved. But in the covenant of grace, the provision of that perfect obedience is granted to us as a gift from God. And it is that perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And so there's a sense in which the requirement of old covenant and new remain the same. The, the sense in which the, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace have the same requirement. Adam owed God perfect obedience. He broke covenant. He failed to keep that covenant. He brought the judgment of sin and death upon himself. He rendered himself and his seed, his descendants, you and I are counted among his seed, incapable of obedience. And so God steps in and he offers a perfect righteousness, a perfect obedience that is accounted to us in his sight. And so the law really is important to our salvation. And that's what the Apostle Paul is effectively writing here when he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. His emphasis upon grace and salvation through faith that is not a result of works is a pointed statement that we are never saved by our own works. We have no works that are perfect in righteousness that God will accept. But we receive the gift of the perfect work of Christ accounted to us. And that's the only way anyone has been saved. And that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. When they broke covenant in the garden, they brought upon themselves the wage of sin, which is death. And yet God came and gave the first promise of the gospel in his word of judgment upon the serpent. Promising that the seed of the woman would crush his head. And the ultimate referent there is the Lord Jesus Christ. Though we who belong to the Lord Jesus are also then counted as the seed of the woman. But the ultimate referent is Christ and so when the animal skins are provided for the covering of the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve, there is pictured for us sacrifice, the shedding of blood. And when God then gives his law to Israel through Moses at Sinai, there is prescribed a, a significant ritual of the shedding of blood. And stipulations regarding sacrifices and where they are to be offered and how they are to be offered. And all of this law is gracious. Because what God is saying through that law is you are sinners and you deserve death. But I am providing a salvation 
that is gracious. I am removing from you the liability to death, and I am offering you life and righteousness. So we heard that gracious basis for the law in our Old Testament reading from Exodus 34, and the second occasion of God's giving of the law. And again, already God's people had proven they were not worthy of the blessings of his grace. But when the Lord passes before Moses, as he's been instructed to go back to Sinai with more tablets, he makes himself known, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, what a beautiful description of the mercy and the grace of God for we who are sinners and who are utterly dependent upon His grace. But He's not done there. He says He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Even with the promise of grace, there is this warning regarding the seriousness of sin and the certainty of judgment for sin. And that leads Moses to bow down quickly with his head toward the earth in worship. And I'll read again his plea of God. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in our midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses knows those with him cannot perfectly obey God. He knows they won't. Going back to Psalm 105, I commended the reading of Psalm 105 and 106 uh, perhaps today. In the morning sermon, we read in verses 43 to 45 that he, the Lord, brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toils. Why? That they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. The blessings of God were were graciously given. The law of God was graciously given so that his people might know their need for forgiveness. And that need was exposed by the law demonstrating their sin and their deviation from the will of God. But it was also that need was expressed in the ritual law calling for the sacrifices that were to be offered by those who knew they deserved to die but who were counting on God. To impute their guilt to another. Not to bulls and goats. But ultimately to Jesus Christ. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. They were acknowledging in that ritual law. And their observance of the ritual law. That God himself would have to provide them. With what he required. And that's what we find in the new covenant in Christ's blood. That's what we have. That's the provision God has made. I'll remind you of one of those faithful sayings of Titus 3. I commended this to families for memorization when we went through Titus some years ago. Titus 3, 4 to 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now that's a remarkable statement, and it points us to one of the questions that we might have regarding this call to have a high regard for the moral law of God. And it's a question that has arisen in the first century and arises today. If Jesus really has saved us, if everything has been done for us, then do we need to be concerned with the moral law of God? Is there any point in our teaching our children the Ten Commandments? Is, is, is there a need for us to strive to walk in the obedience of faith in regards to laws given so long ago on Sinai? Why is that necessary if we're saved? Maybe kind of a parallel question that, that illustrates it is... Um, and I'm not commending that any of you buy lottery tickets, by the way. But, but if you won the lottery, let, let's say you picked up a ticket that we found on the ground, and it turned out to be the winning ticket, and you were suddenly fabulously wealthy, the question you might ask is, why go to work anymore? If the whole point of work was to get money to pay my bills, why go to work? I'm set. But the purpose of our salvation it's not just that we get to heaven, it's that we glorify our God, that we honor him with praise. And so a gracious salvation where Christ has accomplished all that is required for our justification does not mean we jettison the law of God or disregard his commands for us to live a holy life because that's taken care of. No, that saving power that the Spirit works in our lives is a sanctifying power that fills us with a desire to fulfill God's purpose, which is that he be glorified in our lives, from our lips and on the earth. You may recall uh, from... Our study of Romans some years ago. You know, we started that six years ago. Last, I didn't realize that until I got back to work Tuesday. You know, flew in late Monday night, got to work Tuesday. I had a memory pop up on social media Tuesday morning. It, it was six years to the day that I had my first day of work here. So that's how far back we go to Romans. It took us a while to get to chapter 6. But the Apostle Paul, having celebrated and explained the gospel of grace, raises these, these questions, these rhetorical questions. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do we sin all the more because if we know we're forgiven, we're just glorifying Christ by giving him more to forgive? The answer is by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we love what made us sick and keep going back to it? And then later in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Why would we go back to what was killing us? And what was killing us was our disregard for God and disobedience. Why would we go back to that which enslaved us? We've been set free from the guilt and bondage of our sins so that we might walk in a new life. 
And so the Apostle Paul celebrates a salvation that comes by grace through faith. Not of works, not of our works, but through the work of Christ. And then he says, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're called to care about the law of God and we're called to be concerned for doing the good things he's called us to do, the things that are in accordance with his law, because he has prepared those things for us beforehand. He has given us the instruction already in how we are to live. And so in Titus, Paul said that we're to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Our first catechism question, number 86, explains this with beautiful language. And it explains that we must do good works because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image. So that with our whole life, we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured by our, of our faith by its fruits and that by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors to Christ. The gospel doesn't simply free us from sin's reign and from the condemnation of the law to walk in obedience, but it empowers us for this new life. The Lord God himself in the third person of the Trinity, indwells us. When our hearts are changed, our affections are being transformed. And the law, then, is not an enemy to us. It's, it's not something that we're called to, uh, to, to, to hate or to resent. But it becomes, for us, a rule of life. It becomes, for us, the expression of God's will. For how we should live as those who have been saved by his keeping its provisions perfectly on our behalf. And now our call is not to resent the provisions, but to delight in the provisions. And that's what we hear in Deuteronomy. When Moses rehearses the law. At the very beginning of that rehearsal in Deuteronomy chapter 6. As Moses introduces the statutes and the rules, the commandment that the Lord has commanded him to teach. He says, I teach these that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may be multiplied greatly, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. And then comes the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so the law has been given to us because God loves us and is gracious. And we are to delight in the law and to walk in the obedience of faith because we love him and the grace that he has shown us. He hasn't left us in the dark to stumble about figuring things out for ourselves. He's made his will known for our salvation and for our sanctification. 
And now we are called in the power of new life that has been granted to us to give him glory, to manifest our thankfulness in the fruit of our faith, which is the life of good works worked in obedience to the word of God. Further questions will come into the matter of the proper definition of good works. But for tonight, we're emphasizing the law of God because this is an introduction to the section of the catechism which deals with the law of God. And the law of God is to be a delight for God's people. And we hear that delight in the Old Testament. We hear it in Psalm 19. We hear that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the law of God is given to revive souls, to make the simple wise, to bring joy to the heart, to bring light to the eyes. The law is not our enemy. Before we were in Christ, the law did pronounce a judgment upon us and we were under that judgment. But in Christ, the judgment of the law has been satisfied. It's just requirements met. And now the law for us is a matter of blessing. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And because we have been purchased at the price of Christ's blood. We're not our own. We live for him. And he's given his words so that we would know how we might live to please him. 1 Corinthians 9, we read that. And the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, how are you going to do that? How do I know how to glorify God with my body? I can't follow my base instincts. I can't go with, with the whim of the moment. I've followed my base instincts in certain occasions in my life. I've followed the whim of the moment, and it has led me into sin. I have to be led by the Word and the Spirit of God. And we look to His law. We look to the moral law, summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And what do we find? An expression of the holiness of God and whom he is calling us to be in Christ. There's another matter that is pointed out regarding the use of the law and our commitment to good works. Not that we might be justified by our efforts, but that we might glorify the God who has saved us and and that is the assurance that the Lord brings as we learn to love his law and to look to his grace to lead us in obedience. The assurance and the testimony that that transformed life, that life ever being transformed as it is conformed to the word of God, brings to others who see us and who know us. God has designed us for himself. And his purpose is that we would make him known and that he would be seen in us. And if we come to the end of Ephesians 2, we find this indicated. 
Um, the Apostle Paul in verses 19 to 22, as, uh, as you come to the end of this chapter, says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the whole point of redemption. That God would be glorified on earth as in heaven and eternally by his glorified people. That he would be glorified as we glorify and enjoy him in the faith of obedience and the obedience of faith. That work of the Spirit in transforming your desires and mine, your appetites and mine, in transforming how we live and how we talk, that is a kind of assurance to us that God is at work. That includes His convicting us for sin, which is painful, but that is a sign of His love and His grace at work in us when we are convicted in looking to the Word of God and hearing the Word taught or preached when we're convicted by, by someone else in their godliness of life and see that we need to turn to Christ for forgiveness of some area of laxity, we need to be instructed and strengthened by His Word and Spirit. All of this is for His glory. And it's work for our good. Because it's not His will that His glory would be shared with any other. But it is to be manifested in our lives. This morning, we heard that this is the fruit of the Savior's work in the healing of souls and bodies. And I'll read again from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is writing of our identity in Christ as those who are set apart in him. And he's urging us to the new life in Christ, which brings glory to God. And he declares that others will see our good deeds. And that will bring glory to God. But what's seen in the life of one who claims to be a Christian, who is not concerned for godliness? But what's seen in the life of one who claims to be a Christian, whether by membership in the church or whether by open profession of mouth, when all who know that one can see that one has no regard for anything of God's truth, there's only lip service given to it? Well, that's the second question for tonight. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and penitent walk of life? And penitent means they're just continuing on. It doesn't matter who's spoken to them. 
It doesn't matter the consequences of sin. It doesn't matter how complicated the life. They will not listen and continue on their way, impenitent and hardened, ungrateful and impenitent. Can those be saved? And the answer is by no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's strong language, isn't it? But that's lifted essentially from Scripture. Ursinus and Olvianus didn't make that up. That's what the Bible teaches regarding impenitence and its danger when any are hardened in their sin and determined to continue on and will not hear or heed the call to repentance and faith. We hear that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And these are things that are actually celebrated in our culture today, aren't they? And yet the God of word, the word of God, is abundantly clear here. That is not the fruit of faith. Such a life is, is not a demonstration of grace. It is not an honoring to Christ that, that he, he will just continue to forgive those who are hardened in their sin and refuse to repent. But this is a word of judgment. But it's not a word without hope. Because the Apostle Paul continues on in the next verse and he says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're not washed so like a sow that has been washed we can simply return to our wallowing. We're not washed so that we can make a show of ourselves and privately continue in sin. We are washed and cleansed that we might in humble reliance upon the Lord Jesus endeavor to walk in newness of life by the strength of his word. And when any one of us has been broken in our sin, when any one of us has seen by the goodness of God how offensive our sin is to him, when we have been arrested so that we grieve and hate our sin and cry out for mercy and plead for strength every day that we might be led by Him, by the light of the truth of His Word, by the power of His Spirit in a new way of life. It's then that we find the joy of salvation. It's then that we find the blessing of walking, not in our own strength, not by sight, but by faith in the One who has loved us and given himself for us. This isn't a life that's lived without regard to the law of God. This is the life that is informed by the law of God. The law which exposes our sin. The law which convicts us of our wickedness, but which then shows us our need for Christ, 
so that when we are drawn to him by the Spirit, suddenly we find there is a perfect righteousness. It's not our own, but it is accounted to us. And now we belong to the God who has filled us with his Spirit and given us new purpose that we would increasingly delight in him and in his word and be led in the way of truth. And in this we find assurance. Not in any perfection of our own because we won't have any until we're glorified in Christ. But we find assurance because we know that his hand is upon us. He has not let us go but has drawn us back. And he continues to place in our hearts a longing for an obedience that gives him glory. Is that the longing of your heart? Is that the joy of your life? It's to this that we are called as God's people to the good works, the delight in the law of God that is the fruit of faith empowered by the grace of God. Let us pray.